118, reading verses 18 to 39 of Romans 8. In uh, the church in New Westminster and the URC, we just, uh, I just preached verses 31 to 39 this morning, bringing the first part of Romans to a beautiful uh, preliminary climax, a preliminary conclusion. We're going to take a break for a little bit, move, uh, go to another book of the Bible for, uh, for a little while, and then come back to Romans 9. But this is a beautiful passage filled with power, almost one that I almost don't dare preach, lest I should turn it into gibberish. And yet, um, there's so much to unpack and to drink in here. Let's begin reading at verse, at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our minds knows the mind of the Spirit. Because, or He who searches our hearts, rather, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have sung this tune. It took a little bit, but it's a beautiful tune. I'm grateful for this. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to the end of Romans 8, as I've been telling uh, my congregation in New West, or the congregation in New West, that from verses 18 on, the Apostle Paul is taking, up, taking us up a series of steps. We are climbing a mountain, as it were. He's giving, he gives us first three uh, reasons Three reasons why we ought to uh, take comfort in our sonship, our adoption as children of God. First, the first reason is that um, the glory that we will one day know in the new creation far outweighs all the sufferings that we can experience in this present life. That's the first encouragement. The second one is that the Spirit who dwells in us, He comes alongside us and helps us in our weakness so that when we don't know what to pray, when we don't have enough energy to pray. When we can't find the words, He intercedes on our behalf and brings our groaning to God with a language that we can't hear, that we can't understand, but a language, a divine spirit language. And thirdly, the final step is that all things, the Apostle Paul promises, inspired by the Spirit, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And with those three steps, we come to the top of the mountain, and now we are ready to take in the glories of the Gospel of God that Paul first introduced in chapter 1. The Gospel of God, which is a righteousness by faith, that we are accepted by God in spite of all of our sin, accepted only because and only in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And though we still struggle with sin, that's Romans 7, though we still cry out with the Apostle Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? The fact is, Romans 8 says, not only are we set free from condemnation, but we have the Spirit living in us who enables us to fight against that sin, to put the deeds of the flesh to death, to live as His children. And now that we've ascended to the top of this mountain, now we drink in, we are ready to, to enter into, by faith, uh, by grace, through faith, all of the glories that God, by His Gospel, has won for us. And there are three especially that are, are mentioned in this passage and, and brought out in, in, through a series of questions. You know, what then shall we say in, re, in response to all of this, in, in response to the gospel of God that we have just heard? Well, first of all, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God gave His only Son for us, certainly He will give us all things needful to bring us to glory. And so we look at the overflowing goodness of God. The next set of questions has to do with our standing before God. Who will bring a charge against God's people? Who will condemn God's people with a condemnation that will stick? No one is the uh, implied answer. 
the expected answer. Why not? Because God justifies. Because Christ has died, is risen, is standing at the right hand, sitting at the right hand of God, and intercedes for us. And so we have this irrevocable justification. Justification that cannot be lost or taken away. And then finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And there we hear the answer is the in, uh, the invincible grasp of God in Christ. The invincible grasp. So first of all, we'll look at His overflowing, uh, his overflowing goodness. Secondly, His irrevocable justification. And finally, His invincible grasp. His overflowing goodness. What then shall we say to these things? Sorry, that's the New King James NIV. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And these two questions together form a a single implied response. In the first place, when when Paul asks us the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's calling us to to focus on the, the bigness and the power, the almighty power of God. And secondly, if we were to ask, yeah, God is powerful, but is His power for me? Is He committed to me? Then Paul follows that up with the question, well, if God gave His own Son for you, do you think He will withhold any other good from you? He's not only powerful, but He, was lo- he is loving and He is willing. And so through the, the cross of Christ, the giving of the Son, then we trace back into the very heart of God and we see His love, his, the power of His love. Truly, not a Celine Dion song, not the Celine Dion version, but the true power of love. That is divine love. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is a lot of things can be against us. Jordan Peterson, uh, in one of his lectures from 12 Rules for Life, says it's, it's, it's amazing that there aren't more people who are just filled with anxiety. If you think of all the, the dangers that surround us, If you think of the capabilities that mankind has to destroy this world, to wipe us off the the face of the earth, why aren't aren't more of us anxious, biting our nails and in constant anxiety all day? We're surrounded by dangers. Of course, all things, all kinds of things can be against us. The point is, if God is for us, what ultimately can be against us to our harm and to our detriments? The answer is nothing. That in God, in God, in Christ, with God, in Christ, even the worst things, even the most terrible things, God will use for the good of His people. Death itself, for example. Death itself, for God's people, is God's instrument to hasten them to glory. Death itself is not good. Disease itself is not good. Suffering in itself is not good. But God, in the midst of this present evil age, so overrules all of them, bends them, as it were, to serve the good of His people so that nothing, not even the worst power, can possibly be against us to harm us in an ultimate sense. 
any harm that they can bring, God will overrule, will use as an instrument to bring us to glory. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, no one ultimately. He is our sovereign protector, committed, passionately committed to you and I in the covenant of grace. Moreover, not only is He powerful, but He is willing. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Christ, along with His Son, graciously give us all things? God has done the greatest thing conceivable for us. So the other blessings, well, that's not a problem for Him. Certainly, if He would give His own Son, how, why would we doubt that anything else, which can't possibly be as great as, as the gift of His own Son, how is it possible that anything else would be a problem? Why would He withhold those things if He has shown the depth and width and height of His love for us in the giving of His Son? He did not spare His Son. In another place, at another time, father and son walked up a mountain and Abraham was ready to slay his son, but God stayed his hand, stayed the knife. Fast forward ahead to Mount Calvary. And this time the father did not stay the knife. But he delivered his son over to the condemnation and, and abandonment that our sin deserved. Our sins deserve. He delivered him over to Satan and to his devices, to the hounds of hell. That's why we sing Psalm 56. David is saying, I'm I'm surrounded by these enemies. Christ was surrounded by hell and the forces of hell on the cross. God did not withhold one stroke of judgment. Every ounce, every bits of eternal judgment that you and I deserve for offending the infinite honor of God was laid upon His Son. Now, there's no antithesis between the Father and the Son. We should not think of this as the Father forcing, coercing the Son into this. No, Jesus Himself says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I take it up again. Jesus Himself does this together with the Father in all of eternity. This was the covenants that they made together. And so the Son, the Father gave up His Son for love, so the Lord Jesus Christ stayed on that cross for love. When they taunted Him, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God, He could have. But He stayed there for love. Love for the Father. Love for sinners. And so, such amazing love, unsearchable depths, unspeakable gifts. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you ever doubt, if you ever doubt if the Father is willing, if behind the dark clouds of painful providence in your life, if behind those dark clouds you think, well, God must be angry with me. I'm not being blessed like I wish I was. If in the midst of depression and anxiety, it feels as though God has abandoned you. The Apostle Paul is saying, 
He who gave His only Son for you will not withhold any good thing. All things are at your disposal. An inexhaustible resource of grace for you to bring you to glory. To conform you to the image of His Son. Again, we trace through the cross of Christ. We trace that all the way back to the heart of the Father. Who gave His Son for us. Secondly, if that's the first uh, part of, of this vista, of this glorious landscape which we are overlooking here from the summit, the second one is irrevocable justification. Irrevocable justification. Who? Here we are brought into a courtroom scene. The question is, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, there's those whom He has chosen for eternal life from before the foundation of the world. Who will bring any charge against them? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So again, these two questions go together. We are in a courtroom, and there are our accusers charging us, calling for our our condemnation. Something like Zechariah chapter three, verses one to three, where we read uh, that God, the the Holy Spirit, shows Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And, and this is the image that we are to, to, to imagine here. That we're standing in that great hall of judgment, and Satan is accusing us, bringing charges against what we've done in the past. How we are so undeserving, worthless sinners. Hypocrites. That our lives have been, there's been such a huge gap between the way we've lived and what we've confessed. How can we possibly think that God would let us into His heaven and into His heart and home? He calls for our condemnation. And so do our enemies. And so does our own conscience. But what's the answer? It is God who justifies. That is, if God, what God has declared... All those who confess Christ, all those who rest in Christ, God has said the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account and your sin is laid on Christ. You are righteous. You are forgiven. You are accepted in my sights. You are my child and that will never be taken away. Because when I do that once, it is impossible, absolutely impossible For me to reject the work of my Son. For me to reject the work that He has accomplished, decreed from eternity past. So who will bring a charge against God's elect, against those whom God has chosen? The answer is, well, 
No one, not successfully. Because God is the highest court of appeal in the land. There is no appeal beyond Him. It's God who, who justifies. Sometimes God's people are afflicted with dark and wretched thoughts about themselves. They maybe don't want those thoughts and Satan just sends them. Maybe it has to do with a background, an upbringing where they were never good enough. Or maybe trauma in the past. A defilement from the past that clings to them. Thoughts and, and, and then thoughts fill their minds about how worthless they are. That God could never love them. They deal with frequent anxiety that they can't be forgiven and they must do something Maybe it's, 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 uh, it's wash the bathroom one more time. Maybe it's clean the car just, just one more time today. Do something, anything to, to feel clean, to be forgiven before God. Not everyone will ex- experience those accusations in the same way or with the same intensity, but there will be. If not, if it hasn't yet happened, there will be a time in your life that Satan accuses you in a very specific way. whether in your conscience from an enemy. What do we say then? God who justifies. God has said this. And if the answer is, yeah, well, how do you know? What, what makes you think that God has justified you, that He would love you, that you're one of His elects? And where do you go? Well, Paul anticipates that too. He says when they're calling for your condemnation, when your conscience accuses you, where do you go? You go to Jesus. You know Him as the one who gave His life for you. You know Him as the one who was raised from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God with power. You know Him as the one who is seated above all authority, all power thrones, all powers, thrones, and dominions. And you know Him as the one who intercedes for you. Think of that. Not only that He died for you on the cross, but that rising to new life and ascending into heaven, He now is there praying for you. Praying that your faith won't fail. Praying for your forgiveness. Praying for your sanctification, for your protection. All on the basis of His finished work. Applying for you and I daily, moment by moment from heaven, all that He has accomplished for you at His cross. And the Father, nothing delights Him more than to answer the prayers of His Son for you. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that He ever lives. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. That means every moment of every day. What is Jesus' consuming passion? It is to pray for you. Dane or- Pastor Dane Ortland asks this question, what if you were praying in your room one day and in the room next to yours, you suddenly heard the very person of Jesus Christ praying out loud for you? Would that not change your life? And Well, the point is, that's what he's doing right now. He's praying for us. Or as John Murray says, nothing serves to verify the constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of His people. Nothing assures us of His unchanging love more than the tenderness with 
which his heavenly priesthood bespeaks, and particularly as it comes to expression in his intercession for us. Who shall bring a charge? Who shall lay condemnation at your door? It's God who justifies. And God's justification is grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the life he now lives as he prays for you in heaven. Praying that, he, that we will be with him where he, where he is to behold his glory as he prayed in John 17. So irrevocable justification, meaning a righteousness and acceptance of God that can't ever be taken away. It can't ever be lost or diminished. Thirdly and finally, this eternal security, this invincible grasp of God in Christ. Verse 35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? The Apostle Paul experienced all of these things in his lifetime and in his death when, as tradition has it, he was beheaded by Emperor Nero around A.D. 64. But he himself tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 the sufferings that he has gone through and, and these are listed there. He speaks from experience, not only as one inspired by the Spirit, but one who has gone through these things. And then, and then just to assure us that this, this is not uncommon for Christians, so that we don't think that all of these promises mean that, well, God will keep us from suffering. That we should expect to have worldly strength and, and prosperity in this life. That sort of prosperity or health and wealth gospel, as though that's really what that, that's really the norm for Christians. He goes to Psalm 44, verse 22, in a psalm where the people have been faithful, they've been righteous, and they're wondering why everything is just defeat and failure and suffering. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's point is none of this means that you won't ever face intense suffering and opposition. It doesn't mean it's all easy from here on in. This is not a Pollyanna worldview that the Apostle Paul is presenting to us. It's very real and honest. When we hear, for example, in Psalm 91, about how all you know, the, the arrows flying through, you know, through the air the, uh, the pestilence that stalks at midday. None of that will come near you, for God will protect you and uphold you. That is not a promise to say as though you won't ever go through suffering in life. The point is that we have a life in God that can never, ever be taken away. Death is a promotion to glory. And beyond that, finally on that great day, will be the new creation. We have a life in God that can never be taken away. No, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. More than conquerors. That is victory and then some. Or maybe another translation could be super conquerors. How so? How, how is that? Well, Paul doesn't, doesn't explicitly state why he uses those, those, those words more than conquerors. But it may very well be that when we get there on that great day in the new creation, when we, or before that even, when we, when we get to glory and we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, and there we are with all the saints who have gone before us. You know, and maybe we're having a conversation with Jacob and we're talking about how all those things that, were, that went on in our life, the difficult stuff, the tricks and the conniving and the deceiving and the, the gimpy hip that he got from wrestling with God. There you are talking about your life and his life and, and you see you know, we're more than conquerors considering all that happened back then. How so much of it seems also wrong. And now we get here and we see how God used all of that in an amazing way to bring us to glory. Yeah, we are more than conquerors. When we think of Jesus Christ at the cross, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that love was shown where to us, was given where to us especially? Well, at the cross. And what was the experience of Christ at the cross well when he was hanging there and when he was buried in the grave all the evidence said that he was not a victor that he was a loser that he was an excommunicated Jew who was accursed by God who was in the ruins of death in the belly of the beast he had died like every other false messiah And that scorn and derision that had been heaped on him, he deserved every bit of it. And it was all a waste of time. And that hell had been victorious. At the cross, from a human perspective and in the grave, that's what it all said. Colossians 2 verse 15 says he made an open show of their defeat triumphing over them in it. Rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, there to reign at the right hand of God. It became clear that what Satan thought was his victory dance was actually the point in which he, like Gollum, went plunging into the lava. He thought he had won, but in the end it was his own undoing. Hoist with his own petard, as Shakespeare would said, would say. He fell into the pit that he dug for Christ and for his people. And so Christ, Colossians 2.15 says, made an open display of that victory at the cross and in the resurrection. It's as though Paul is, is, is thinking of the, the Roman practice of dragging an enemy behind the chariot. That's what Christ did. At the cross, that's his chariot as he drags Satan behind more than conqueror. And so we are in and with him. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can bring a charge against you? What can separate you from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. That is... In the love of God, 
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I do not at all want to take from the glory and the free grace and the sovereign salvation of this passage. That's why I've preached it like I have. Not qualifying it. Not saying, you know, yes, but. But all of that grace is only found in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you today are hearing the words, and every Sunday you hear those words, and you know things about Jesus, but you've not given your life to Him. You have not surrendered your life to Him. You do not rest in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you are too cool, or you are too proud, or you are too much in love with this world, to stake your life upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then this isn't true for you. This is not yours. But it absolutely can be. How do you know that you can have this assurance, this grace, all of these blessings? How do you know that you can have the love of God? Well, you can have that love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And for all of us, all of us are called to faith and repentance every moment of every day that I find again my salvation. Where? In the Christ whom God has sent. In Him alone, all the saving blessings of God flow to me. And that in Christ alone can I trace back to the heart of the Father and see His absolute, inexhaustible, and sovereign love for me. It is a free gift. And I don't deserve it and no one deserves it. But it is held out to every sinner. And every sinner who comes to Christ then can look back. I think it was uh, an old man in, uh, I'll close with this. I think as Canadian Reformed people, you'll appreciate this. It was an old man in Prince Edward Islands who was saying to me, he said he remembered growing up in Kroningen in Holland. Remembered once he heard Reverend Klaas Skilder preach. And he said, I, remember, I don't remember much of the sermon, but I remember this illustration from Pastor Skilder. He said, covenant and election is like this. You come to Christ and you receive the welcome of Christ. And you embrace Him in faith. And you, you, you embrace His promises. And you enter into His heart and into His family. And you step into that room of the covenants. And then you turn around and on this side of the door, you see the words, elect chosen, invincibly held, irrevocable justification. None of that can be taken away when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that wide welcome. This, this is the beauty and the glory, not that we deserve, but that we receive, that we get as a gift. Amen. Let's, 